You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, June 19th, the Washington Post hosted entertainers, journalists, technology experts, and leaders in government to discuss the future of the First Amendment. This second annual free-to-state program featured discussions about net neutrality, the evolution of political correctness, political satire in comedy, free speech on college campuses, and so much more. In this segment, the former Cambridge Analytica research director turned whistleblower, Christopher Wiley, discusses the potential uses of big data to influence behavior, and he also assesses how online communities are facilitating free expression and thought in the digital age. Let's listen. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Craig Timberg. I'm the National Technology Reporter at The Washington Post. And here is Christopher Wiley. He was the uh, research director for Cambridge Analytica. I think you all are familiar with the story he helped bring to light a few months ago about the ways in which Facebook data was obtained and a lot of other data was obtained and used to uh, help influence the outcome of elections and a lot of other things as well. And uh, so before we get started, I want to remind everyone that there's a that there's a, you can, you can tweet questions using the hashtag free to state with no, with no spaces. Anyway, let's start with a kind of a general question since we're here to talk about the First Amendment. Chris, what you talked about was involved privacy, it involved political manipulation, it involved our democracy, arguably. Yeah. Um, how, what's the connection here with the First Amendment from your point of view? Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the first thing that I'd say is that privacy is the foundation of freedom, right? Because privacy is what allows us to decide how, how we are and how we want to develop our personality in different, in different contexts. Who do we want to be in our family? Who do we want to be with our friends? Who do we want to be at work, in public? Privacy is the tool that allows you to decide who, who you are in different contexts. Um, and, and, and without privacy, we don't have freedom. We don't have, including uh, f freedom of speech. Um, and when you look at, um, when you look at sort of the, 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 the notion of the, the, the First Amendment, and I say this as a non-American, as a Canadian, as an, as an outsider, so I'll just caveat everything that I say. But, um, but when you look at you know, what, what was envisioned when you have a country being set up as a democracy and, and, and having free speech as at the center of that, it's the public forum and it's debate. And when you look at what's happened with Cambridge Analytica or social media, and we take a step back and go, what, what, what was, how was democracy envisioned uh, back when the Bill of Rights was being drafted? You have a candidate, they stand up, they say what they think, and you have an audience, you have a, 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 you know, a community in a town square. Everybody hears the same thing. And that's really important because uh, what I'm saying as a candidate is then open to scrutiny. People, people in, in the community can, can call me out if I lie, if I, if, I, if I tell something that's untrue. It's open to debate. It's open to uh, a, a candidate from another party or, or, who's, who's opposing me uh, to, to call me out on something. And, and that's actually a really important 
uh, uh, facet of, of democracy is this, this notion of the public forum and a common experience of what I am saying as a candidate or as somebody who is trying to convince you of something. When you look at what's happened in social media, it allows me as a candidate to, to erode the public forum because I now can go to each and every one of you in the audience and whisper in your ear something. Right? And you don't know what I'm telling this person versus that person versus that person. And there's no way to, to, to scrutinize that. And, but I'm also doing it after having followed you around for weeks on end, seeing what you like, what you eat, where you go, who do you associate with, what do you talk about. And so it, it, as, a, as a candidate, all of a sudden, you, know, you are now able to speak individually to each person and whisper into their ear. And when, when we look at sort of how was the First Amendment uh, imagined or how was free speech sort of imagined back in the day, that was not physically possible to do. And I, the, 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 the sort of intersection between data and technology and, and how speech is, is now sort of being engaged in our democracy, really the, the, the question that we have to, to, to answer is if if there is no ability for journalists or, or opposition candidates or even just civil society to scrutinize what is being said in our democracy, where the effect of that is that people start to engage with, with an election um, with a different understanding of what is real, are we, are we eroding the foundation of, of our democracy itself? It sounds like you're saying that sometimes there can be either maybe too much speech in a sense or speech that's too narrowly delivered to really make it feel a functional part of a democracy. Well, yeah, because the, 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 the point about free speech is it's protecting your ability to say stuff in public. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, but the difference is that if you, if you are a campaign or if you're a business or what have you that is, is saying things to each individual person, you might, you have a message that's all being delivered in private. Right. And if that starts, and if that, if that is not open to scrutiny, if people can't, if people don't, can't scrutinize because they don't know that it's happening, that's where you create these sort of, you know, cognitive monocultures that exist in the United States and elsewhere because, uh, you know, it, there's, there's nothing that, that prevents it from happening in the first place because it's all hidden. So, Chris, you and I met uh, a few months ago back in London after the first few stories about yeah. the Cambridge Analytica stuff. And yeah. since then, you've become very popular with uh, law enforcement and regulators around the world. Um, can, can you tell us in general, I realize there's maybe some things yeah. you're not allowed to cover in this space, but talk to, talk to us in general about what, what are authorities uh, interested in understanding about Cambridge Analytica and what, what happened there? Um, so it depends on the jurisdiction. So for example, in the UK, where there is uh, the Data Protection Act, which is a specific piece of legislation to do with how um, data and personal information can be handled, um, that is the prism, uh, that, that is the lens that uh, regulators are looking at it. Uh, in the United States, there is no Data Protection Act. So, um, you know, when you look at what different regulators and and the the, the police are looking at it, it, it there's different aspects of the law here that may have been engaged. Whether it's foreign corrupt practices, whether it is fraud, whether it is um, various pieces of consumer legislation uh, or consumer protection legislation, or indeed, when you're looking at um, Facebook, the the FTC and the consent decree that um, Facebook agreed to and whether they were 
compliance with that. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot of different agencies and a lot of different regulators in the United States that are looking at it from different perspectives. Um, but in, but the, the interesting thing that I've found, having dealt now with both American and European regulators, is that it's a lot simpler in, in, in Europe because there is data protection right. legislation. There's, there's bright laws that one could cross. There's just so very there. clear statutes. Right. Whereas here, here so it's, it's, it's messy. It's like there, there's something feels wrong, but it's more complicated here because the laws are, you know, there is no federal privacy law. There's no federal data protection law. And, that, and that's actually something that I've talked quite a bit about with, with various members of Congress and senators here is that, you know, it's interesting that you have the, the, the one Western developed country that it does not have national privacy legislation. Right. And so as we walked in, uh, on the video screen behind us, they showed Steve Bannon, the former yeah. um, head of Breitbart News, the former White House official, the former head of President Trump's campaign. Uh, I gather you knew Steve Bannon in his Cambridge Analytica incarnation. He yeah. was vice president. Yeah. You were a relatively senior official in that company. Tell me about Steve Bannon's role in Cambridge Analytica and what it did and to what extent he knew about the things it was doing, including the collection of Facebook data. Well, he, he knew about everything that was going on in the company because um, everything had to be authorized by him. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was uh, him and Rebecca Mercer together who approved how money was spent, what projects could be, what, what projects were focused on, what they weren't. And also, he was one of the people who after, you have to remember, like, when, when I joined SCL, this was before even, you know, Alexander Nix met Steve Bannon. This is, you know, Cambridge Analytica wasn't even, you know, a glimmer in our, you know, our, our, our eyes yet. Um, um, you know, we, were, we weren't doing alt-right research. We weren't doing alt-right projects. That all came when Steve Bannon took over. So Cambridge Analytica became Cambridge Analytica because of Steve Bannon. He even picked the name. Like, every, it was his, it very much was his vision of a company and what he wanted to do. Because when he, the, the problem for, for Steve was that, you know, with, 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 with Breitbart, it wasn't expanding into the, the mainstream uh, in a way that he, he wanted. And when you think about um, a culture war, you need an arsenal of weapons to fight a culture war. And so the, the, the notion of using a, a foreign military contractor that specializes in information operations and psychological warfare for the military really appealed to him because he could then use that company and to me, build informational weapons. Let me just clarify this for a second. So there was an yeah. underlying company, SCL Group, yeah. based in London, yeah. that did what you psychological operations around to government. For the military, including for the Department of Defense here. Including our own yeah. US government, yeah. British government. Yeah. And out of that is born Cambridge Analytica when Rebecca Mercer and her father invest yeah. millions of dollars. Cambridge Analytica becomes essentially an American brand of the SCL. Yeah, it, 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 it acquired the intellectual property of SCL, put that into a, a new company in America called Cambridge Analytica, then licensed back the same IP to SCL, and then had an agreement where all, all contracts had to then go to SCL. Uh, so there, like Cambridge Analytica didn't have any staff, right? Cambridge Analytica was a concept. Um, it was a brand, it was an American thing, so that, you know, because it would look optically bad. You know, this is one of the things that I later learned, is that um, they were concerned that the optics of using a foreign military contractor in American elections 
would not play, play well. What were they thinking? <laughs> um, so, but it was, it was an idea that was based, um, had an office in Manhattan, am I right? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they eventually set up an office. And incorporated in, in Delaware. Yeah. And the vice president was? Steve Bannon. And the president was? Uh, Rebecca Mercer. And the most important financial backer was? Bob Mercer. So this is certainly like a substantial American footprint in the end, but all of the work was being done where? In, in London. Um, so uh, the, the, the bulk of the, you know, th there was almost no Americans working in the, in the company. Um, because it, it wasn't, it, it, you know, when, it, when, it, when the IP got acquired, we weren't working in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the problem is, and they were warned, um, you know, re repeatedly that uh, by, by lawyers, by Rudy Giuliani's law firm, sent a memo to Steve Bannon um, saying, hey, you know, you can't have foreign agents operating in an election. Uh, you can't do that. Um, and they completely disregarded that. Uh, and just kept and kept going. I remember having conversations with them, going, uh, you, you, we, "You need to create an American team to be compliant." So, if you were in London and they're in New York or Washington yeah. or wherever, how are you interacting with Steve Bannon and Rebecca? Well, he Foster? would he would come he would come so he, Steve would come to London all the time because he was also setting up Breitbart UK. Um, so he had a lot of projects on the go in 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 London. Um, and, and so he would be there frequently, um, but you know, conference calls and whatnot. Um, and what was he like? Um, it's funny because there's two, um, I remember two different Steve Bannons. So one when it was before he took over, and I actually quite enjoyed talking to him because one of the first conversations that I had with him was on like the intersectional nature of identity, because um, he was quite interested in that. And, um, you know, one of the things he taught, he, he, he was really interested in culture, uh, and he, you know, because the, the Breitbart doctrine is that uh, politics flows from culture, it's downstream from culture, so if you want to change politics, you have to change culture. And one of the things that I said is like, well, but you can't define what culture is. You haven't told me what culture is. And until you define it, you can't measure it. And if you can't measure it, you don't know what you're doing, you're just stabbing in the dark. And so one of the things that I said is I said, well, if you look at, um, the words and language that we use to describe different cultures um, and the words and language that we use to describe ourselves as people, often they're the same adjectives, right? So if you just indulge in some stereotyping for a second, what are Italians like? Maybe they're more passionate, maybe they're more neurotic, they're louder. If, what are Germans like? They're, sorry if I'm like offending people. Um, you know, they might be more organized, more dutiful. Um, and, and when you look at that from a data scientist perspective, actually what you're probably describing is just a curve. And you're describing that there's the, where the mean is on this curve is, is slightly higher or lower on certain, uh, on certain traits or certain characteristics of people. Um, and so the building blocks of culture maybe are people and their personalities and that in the aggregate, that is what, what creates culture. Um, that it is a, 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 an aggregation of our uh, commonly shared characteristics. And so if you wanted to uh, measure culture and you wanted to change culture, you first would need to measure people. And once you create a measurement of people that corresponds to culture, when you want to move this curve one way or the other, you can literally create a list of people you know, that you need to move that that one standard deviation out, and then that becomes your target universe. 
Um, and so he, he found that really interesting. He also liked the idea that we were working on military projects, and, and he was the one that convinced um, Bob to, to buy into it. And it, did Cambridge Analytica indulge in any voter suppression efforts, so far as you know? Um, well, I, I, am, I am aware of various projects where uh, voter suppression in the behavioral sense, so not vote caging or, or, or you know, literally removing people off of lists, but identifying behavioral characteristics in certain target groups, mostly, as I understand it, African Americans, and finding things that will, that will demotivate them to turn out. What kinds of things? So making politics sounding confusing or, or, um, or, or boring or finding things that somebody really cares about and repositioning that to make them, essentially making people hate politics or find it confusing. Um, uh, it, but it depends on what uh, sort of target group you're looking at because different people have different sort of motivators or rather demotivators. But um, there was there was definitely um, memos and, um, and and documentation that talked about quote unquote voter disengagement as a priority for certain projects. For what clients? Um, various PACs that were Mercer funded, um, and it's interesting because one of the a company called UpGuard, which is a um, a, a data uh, a data security firm, found a misconfiguration in some of the Ripon software. And so, Ripon is a project at Cambridge Analytica yeah, for American, yes, targeting American sorry. Republican candidates. Yeah, yeah, so this is the software that took the data and then pushed out ads online. And one of the things that they actually found recently was there was a section of software uh, code that actually was labeled the, um, like the disengagement module, the voter disengagement module. Um, and so it was like suppression was built into some of the software that they were actually building for, for Republican clients. So let's talk about Facebook for a second. Sure. Facebook, lots of people love Facebook, see pictures of their friends' babies and their trips, so they keep in touch with folks maybe they haven't seen for years. Did Facebook do something wrong here? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so I, I think, um, uh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, so first of all, um, you know, I think that um, Facebook hasn't been wholly candid with with what it knew when and what um, how much did it tolerate the projects that were happening because it it actually approved the terms and conditions of the application. So before um, before the data harvesting began. Facebook was notified with a new set of terms and conditions that said this data is going to be pulled, this is how it's going to be pulled, um, and it's going to be commercialized, transferred, and sold. And this happens before this it collected on 87 million people. This happens before, and they approved it. Now, the CTO of Facebook at the British Parliament a couple weeks ago said that they may not have read the terms and conditions <laughs> before they approved it. It'd be so, like all of us, though. And so we the, always do that. The irony of a company that says, "Oh well, you've got these users that sign these terms and conditions, so they agree for us to do whatever we want with their data." Don't even read terms and conditions of applications that then take that data also. And it's because, you know, fundamentally, part there's a, there's an aspect of, of Facebook's business model which is that that, that doesn't involve privacy. When you take, you have to remember when you're taking data off of Facebook, whether it is legitimately or illegitimately, that data often is just used to optimize Facebook advertising. So, and which is what happened with Cambridge Analytica. So, you know, I, I suspect that Facebook turned 
the, you know, turn the other way when it was happening because ultimately they make money off of it. Um, this is why when you think about even the very layout of Facebook, the likes page, right? When was the last time you ever went on the likes page? When was it you ever looked at your own likes or somebody else's likes? Probably pretty rarely. When have you scrolled down all of the likes? Probably pretty rarely. So you've got all these features that make it really easy to scrape profiles that have no actual utility for users. Um, and Facebook has designed, so Facebook has designed their entire platform to just make data very easily available. But, but don't not, we give them their that, data? That's not to say that, you know, they're doing it intentionally, you know, so no, But we're giving can... it to them, right? What, what, how, how are they acting wrongly if we're just giving them all this data? Shouldn't they use it however they want? No, because that's like saying, you know, should I, I should be able to, that I should be able to build a building with no fire exits um, because it ruins the concept of my, you know, aesthetic. And, and, if, and, and so long as I put terms and conditions outside of the building that says you might burn alive, it's up to those people. If they burn alive, so be it. Um, they wanted to see my conceptual building. You know, the thing, the, thing, the thing that's really important, I think, for people to understand is that we, so in modern society, what, what job uh, can you get where you refuse to use the internet, right? It is the new electricity. Right? So when people sign up to terms and conditions, it's, it's sort of a, it's a false choice because it's like saying, well, you can if you don't want to get electrocuted, don't use electricity and go be a hermit in, in the mountains somewhere. Right? It's not a real choice. And so I'm, it's not even what is Facebook doing wrong or what they're doing, what they're doing right. Or you know, should people just leave Facebook? It's like, well, if you leave Facebook, you're still, you're still on Google. You know, you're still using Twitter. You're still using Uber. You're still using everything to do with modern society involves the collection and harvesting of data. And so we should not be thinking about it through the lens of this false consent in terms and conditions. We should be thinking about it like we do for everything else that's important in our lives, whether it's food, medicine, cars, whatever, in terms of safety in terms of consumer rights, that you don't actually have a real choice to use what is effectively a utility on the internet. And so whether or not you agree or don't agree on these terms and conditions that no one reads, it should be a moot point. We should be creating, as a society, a, a common set of standards that apply universally to whatever technology company it is that, that says, this is what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do with data full stop. Well, uh, this has been fascinating. I wish we had like another hour to dive into all of the ma many potential solutions to the problems you've outlined. This has been really interesting. Thank you, Christopher, for coming in. Cheers. Nice to see you again. Thank you all for listening. And uh, I think there's more awesomeness coming. And so please stay tuned while the next group comes out. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.